Well, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We began last Sunday, uh, beginning, a, beginning a new series called Unfinished uh, through the book of Acts. And so we are at the second uh, spot in this uh, series we'll be in for a while. And, and it's called Unfinished because it begins in Acts chapter 1 verse 1 when uh, Luke says that he's writing about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And uh, the salvation, the cross, justification, atonement, that's finished. He said that is finished. But the mission of Jesus that he has given to his church, to his followers, uh, that is Jesus continued. Uh, That is the mission and the work of Christ that is continuing. So in Luke wrote what Jesus began to do and to teach, we are continuing to fulfill and to bring out uh, in obedience the mission of Christ. And uh, I am not a fix-it person. Any, any men can willing to testify that you're not exactly a fix-it person. You know, Robert, I think we're in agreement here. If I can slip somebody some money to take care of it, uh, that's usually my go-to. But sometimes, you know, you, that isn't always uh, affordable on your budget to do that, correct? And uh, so I have learned to stay away from automobiles. I have no zero anointing in that area. Um, I have less anointing in appliances and all that, but I tend to have more success. Plumbing, uh, you know, so you know, we haven't been flooded yet, so I guess I'm okay there. Uh, not too long back, our dryer went out, and immediately, like, oh, great, you know, that's, you know, whatever a dryer is. And, uh, and we had already bought, you know, being good frugal, bought a used dryer. And we thought, well, hey, you know, we got our money's worth out of it or whatever. And then, of course, I did what every expert does. You get on YouTube and you see if there's somebody's got a video. And I determined that there might be three things that I could look at that could be fixable. And uh, I had to go and get, now it just shows you how ignoramus I am. What's the little meter to, the what? Multimeter, right. So I went and bought one of those, to, had to test one of those. And so I tested the first two things, and they were fine. I thought, oh, no, if it's not this, and it was a little sensor that the latch by the dryer door, I thought, if it's not this, then I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm in deep money or I'm going to have to buy a new one. And so tested that called Sears down here at the mall, got a part, fixed it. You would have thought I created fire, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I was just so excited, right? So, uh, but one of the most frustrating things that I think men and women, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be, you know, want to make sure I'm correct here, uh, realize that there are many, many women that are much more efficient in these things um, uh, than men are, you not being one of them. But anyway, uh, <laughs> she has other greater... Uh, gifts, but uh, but one of the most frustrating things is to try to go about fixing something and having and not having the tools to do it. Now, some of you men have you're like surgeons; you can go and you pick out an exact tool with the measurement and all. And you know me, I'm like, get a butter knife. I think we can do this. You know, and screw. Any men can relate, or women can relate. I mean, we're like, I don't have the exact tool, but I think I can pry it open. And usually, what you do is you make it worse than you know. So, uh, so it goes back to you. Just better call 
you know, go on Angie's list or whatever you do. But uh, one of the good things as we look in the book of Acts is that Jesus has given us a task. And uh, one of the things here we find in Acts chapter 1 is Jesus' last words before he ascended back to heaven. He is resurrected. And uh, he has given the disciples and us a commission. Uh, look at the scripture. It should be on the screen from Luke 24, 47. And Luke, uh, who is the author of Acts, this is a second volume of his uh, continuation of, from the Gospel of Luke. He wrote Acts. And, at, and Luke chapter 24 is giving us a, a picture of some of the events that uh, in, are in Acts chapter 1. But just it says in that repentance, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus said, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That was Jesus' orders. That's the part of the Great Commission that Matthew, another passage we may look at. But Jesus told his disciples that he, his name should be proclaimed to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. We know when Jesus said, go into all the world, uh, starting here at Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, that's the commission that Jesus is giving them. And the good news uh, that uh, for us and, and them and us, all of us of his followers, is that the work that Jesus has given us to do, he has equipped us to do. He has, let's say it this way, you would think, well, what are we talking about tools? He has given us the right tools to accomplish his purpose. He has not just said, go do this. You ever had uh, a boss or employer say, now I want you to go do this project, and you're like, but, you, but I don't have the resources to do, do this. Well, you figure it out. Well, that's frustrating, isn't it? Jesus hadn't just said, well, you figure it out. He has given us the resources and the tools uh, to accomplish what he has given and commanded us to do. So this morning, we're going to uh, be looking at verses 3 through 11, and because it's uh, a little bit of a longer text, I'm not going to read through it here at the beginning. We'll read as we move along, but I want you this morning to make note of four essential tools that I believe are uh, brought out here uh, concerning uh, fulfilling Jesus' work. Again, what Jesus began to do and to teach, that is what he has commissioned his church, his followers, equipping them uh, then and now to finish his mission. And so number one, notice with me, the first is to do Jesus' work, the church must have a solid foundation. If we're going to fulfill and accomplish what Jesus has given us to do, we have to have a solid foundation. Look at uh, Acts 1 verse 3, and it says that he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. There's two components here that I would note uh, about this solid foundation. One is the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus. It, you remember what Paul said? He said, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our preaching, or let's say that our faith, everything is what? It's, it's a waste. He said vain. It's empty. It's a waste. The resurrection is the very cornerstone of, of, our, of our Christian faith. And notice it says that uh, he presented himself alive. Well, that's a good starting place. If you are going to uh, show that you rose from the dead, you've got to be alive. There's a, there's a lot of people that were founders, uh, you know, of great of religions. I say great in the sense of number, not necessarily of value, but, uh, and they're dead. But Jesus 
rose from the dead. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Now, you may choose not to believe it, but you can't deny that the Bible does not teach that, and you can't deny that his close personnel, his followers, did not believe that. In fact, it actually went against their predisposition of of belief because when he talked about it, they wouldn't believe it. Do you remember when Jesus, uh, when, when the women came to the tomb and the tomb was empty and they immediately went to the apostles and they were like, well, we knew it would happen. We didn't even bother. No, they were like, these women are nuts. That's the message translation. Uh, they're, they're out of their minds. In other words, Jesus' resurrection wasn't some concoction of his followers to try to perpetuate this, this movement. It was the very opposite. It went against their belief system that Jesus rose from the dead. And it says that he presented himself with many proofs. Now, at Easter sermon, and every time we, we kind of go over these, of many proofs. I mean, the Bible says that he presented himself at one time to over how many people? Over 500 people at one time. That's pretty impressive, right? Because some people would say, and you've heard me mention this before, that really uh, he didn't physically rise from the dead, but because people emotionally were so uh, distraught at his death and wanted him so much to be alive that they hallucinated that they thought they saw him. Well, that might be valuable for one person, but how does 500 people hallucinate the same thing at the exact same time? Right? It just doesn't make sense. Uh, The disciples hid his body. Well, that doesn't make sense because uh, they were all murdered because of their faith. It's just not against human nature to to die for something you know is not true. So many proofs, and we won't go over all those. Uh, we've done that before. But the, but the Christian faith is the cornerstone, the death, burial, and resurrection. See, the reason the bodily resurrection is so important is because it's the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The, and I'm emphasizing the body, the physical body resurrection of Jesus, not a phantom, not a ghost, not a, not, you know, he's going to come back into some child born in North Korea or some bizarre goofball thing that, that cults get into and the Christ spirit has been brought forth. Um, no, bodily resurrected from the dead. The reason that is so important is because not only is it the guarantee that God accepted Jesus' death as a perfect payment for our sin, but it also means that Jesus satisfied. As Remember when we talked about propitiation? We, we, we dug into that word a little bit uh, uh, several about a month or so ago. It means that God was fully satisfied with the work and the death of Christ on the cross. And so that's the reason the writer of Hebrews can say there is no continual sacrifice for sin. Jesus uh, he finished it, completed it. And as I said earlier, when he said on the cross, and the word teletestai means it is finished, it is completed. And so the resurrection gives proof positive that 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 sacrifice was accepted. But as we're talking about this sure foundation, there's another component in verse 3 that's a part of this foundation. Notice what it says. It says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. That's the only place in the Bible that we get this 40 days. Uh, And that's good information. Remember I said Luke was a physician. 
He was not an apostle. He was actually a, a, a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. And uh, when he composed what we call the Gospel of Luke or according to Luke and the book of Acts, uh, a good physician is a detail man. Aren't you, aren't you glad? Or don't you want a physician, a doctor that's a detail guy? We, we said that last time, right? Isn't that good? You, you don't want some guy filling your prescription or whatever and saying, well, that's close enough. I always round it off, right? That'd be me. Uh, you know, it'd be fine. They'll get a little extra sleepy. It'll be all right. You know, no. No, you don't want me as your doctor, right? Uh, but Luke, and I point that out, is because he's a detail guy. He said, you know, he appeared to them during 40 days. And the reason that's important is because 40 days after the resurrection, and then uh, we'll talk about why that 40 days and then what uh, is ahead and why he told them to wait. But, but the foundation is not only the resurrection, but also the teaching of Christ. And what was Jesus teaching about? It says that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. That's a big theme when you look at Acts and Luke, really. Uh, I think in Luke's gospel, he mentions kingdom like 40 times, and there's eight or 10 times in the gospel of Acts. And the kingdom of God all through the, uh, uh, the New Testament, really, the whole Scripture, but the emphasis on the kingdom of God means the rule of God. And so what is Jesus speaking to them about? He's speaking about concerning the kingdom of God, the rule of God. Now, keep in mind, the kingdom of God, we tend to think of a kingdom as a physical territory or domain, has a flag, has a government. Well, in, a, in one sense, that's the kingdom of God. It may not have a flag and an actual physical territory with borders, but the kingdom of God is the, uh, right now, uh, and we'll, I'll mention this uh, something here in a moment, but it's a spiritual domain. It's a spiritual kingdom, and every kingdom has to have a king, and every kingdom has to have subjects. There's a lot of people in, in mental hospitals that are kings of their own kingdom, but nobody's following them. Are you with me? All right? So if somebody, it's kind of like if you're going to be a leader, we were talking about this earlier, Jim, if you're going to be a leader, you're only a leader if someone is what? following you, right? So, uh, so this kingdom of God, this theme of the kingdom of God is very prominent. Uh, Jesus, even one time in Matthew 12, 28, said something very interesting when he was uh, one of the demonstrations of his messiahship where he was casting out demons. He made this statement in Matthew 12, 28. He says, when you see the Son of Man casting out demons, you will know that the kingdom of God has come upon you, has arrived. What is he saying here? There's a new sheriff in town. Let me say that over here, okay? I mean, that, there is a new sheriff. There's, a, there's one who is telling the demons, you're no longer running this place. The Son of Man, when you see the Son of Man taking authority, that's one of the things that's such a big deal in the New Testament. Jesus not only taught as one who had authority, but he demonstrated authority. And when he cast out demons, he was not just putting on some spectacle of some exorcism like some churches in an area like to have these exorcisms like a circus. No, he was demonstrating that he was the Messiah because if he was truly the Messiah, he would have authority even over the demonic forces. And that's uh, all related to the kingdom of God. One of the things about the kingdom of God, just as kind of a little side note, is because it gets into the area of when we talk about the end times. In theology, we call that eschatology. Uh, throw that around at your next party and people will be impressed or depressed. But, uh, but when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's also related 
to the final uh, uh, days of Christ. And that, that's true. And here's something to keep in mind. The kingdom of God has an, what, what sometimes people refer to as an already, not yet combination, meaning that we are not just waiting for Jesus' return to establish his kingdom. That's future, and that's going to happen. But there's also a present rule and reign of Christ right now. And when we get to the ascension here in a few moments, we will see why, how, that, how that's important. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we are right now enjoying as believers the benefits of the rule and reign of Christ. When we go and we uh, share the gospel yesterday during the seminar with Matt on Islam and Christianity and, and getting a better understanding of how the gospel and Islam and how not, not we're trying to uh, create some combination, but how as gospel-centered people that we want to share the, the gospel, the good news of Christ with our Muslim neighbors. Muslims are our neighbors too. It's not just those people. They're our neighbors, just like Hindus and Buddhists and and, you know, anybody that doesn't know Christ. And so uh, because we now go out as commissioned people, knowing that the king of kings, that we are his subjects, carrying out his commission, when Jesus said, go into all the world, we call that the great commission. Uh, when you joined the military, you were given a commission, or in the Navy, you were given a commission. You were given orders to carry out something, to fulfill something. And so we do that with confidence, not in our own ability, but we do that in full confidence that the King of Kings is presently ruling and reigning right now. But that's already, that, that's already happening, but that's not it. That's not everything because Jesus himself promised a physical bodily return. Did he not? So we may have differences among Christians about timing of the return and uh, what sometimes we refer to as the rapture, which the rapture and the second coming may or may not be the simultaneous event. It, you know, again, we, we, we have argued for those things for 2,000 years. Does it mean we should just throw our hands up and say, well, let's just throw it out and, you know, there's no understanding? No, I believe you should dig down, understand, come to some thoughts. But I always say, I say, well, listen, this is kind of what I lean into, but I'm not going to divide over it. Now, if you say, I don't believe Jesus will bodily, physically return, then we're in big disagreement, okay? But if you say, well, I kind of think this, look at this, whatever, um, then I say, well, okay, well, well, I'm only, I'm, I want to be teachable. Don't you want to be teachable? Don't you want to be a teachable person? Um, and eventually you'll come to my conclusion. So, uh, no. But, you know, we had a seminar on Revelation and, uh, with Dan Hayden, and very detailed. And you can go online and listen to that from uh, back in November. So it isn't that we're anti that. It's just that we are... We're recognizing that there is a future place. There is a future place of Jesus' return. I believe there is a future place for uh, the, the, the place of Israel and all those things. But that's another time and another place. Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God, uh, in Mark 1.15, Mark has a lot about the kingdom of God. And right out of the box, Mark says in chapter 1, verse 15, about Jesus' ministry, Jesus said... Uh, the time is fulfilled, and Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of God is present. Is there anywhere Jesus is not? No. So what does that tell you? Is there any limitations to the kingdom of God? No. 
And so what are we doing? As we, as we proclaim the good news, as we proclaim the gospel, and when a person comes to faith in Christ, whether it's a Muslim or a Hindu or a pagan, a successful business pagan, whoever, guess what? The kingdom of God has advanced one more person. The kingdom of God has taken more territory away from the enemy. Wouldn't it be frustrating to be the devil right now? To know that you're, you've already defeated, you're already doomed, but you've got to walk through this whole thing and have a bunch of scrawny people like us redeemed by the grace of God, having authority and power over your domain. And any time a person leaves the kingdom of darkness and comes into the kingdom of light by God's sovereign grace, guess what? The kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is moving. Remember last week at the beginning, I said there is right now approximately over 2 billion Christians around the world. Two billion Christians. I don't know about you, that's a lot more people than I want showing up for Thanksgiving dinner. That's a lot of folks, right? And the church is growing. And I mentioned this last week and how by the year 2050, the predominant Christian body of people will be in Africa and in Latin America. All from these early beginnings of a dozen guys questioning and wondering What's going on, first of all, let alone Jesus giving them this commission to go into all the world? So the foundation is composed of two things. The resurrection. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, we have a faulty foundation. But it's not just that. It also involves that we need to be wrapped around and committed to the kingdom of God. And keep in mind, Jesus, what he said there, the reason I read that Mark 1.15, and I'm sorry I don't have it on the screen, but you can look at it. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said this. And so what did he say? How do you enter the kingdom of God? He said, repent and believe in the gospel. And I believe repent and believe are, are, are part and parcel. You don't repent and think, well, I'll believe. No, it's together. You repent, you turn away from where you were going, and you believe, you trust the gospel, the good news of Christ. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. But we know that we don't do that just because we woke up one day and said, you know what, I think I'll, uh, I think I'll be a part of this kingdom of God thing. Jesus said in his conversation in John 3 with Nicodemus, Remember that's, you must be born again, right? Remember that? Everybody remember that? It wasn't Jimmy Carter that started that. It was back there. Now that shows age, right? And Jesus has Nicodemus come to him at night wanting to, says, you know, I see that you're, you know, you've seen me be a man from God. He's very impressed. And Jesus began to say, but in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus thinks, well, how is that possible? I'm an old, I can't be born twice. But he was talking about a supernatural birth. But Jesus said something there in John 3, uh, verse 3. Easy to remember, John 3, 3. He said that to Nicodemus, he said, truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, that's regeneration, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Because it means that unless the Holy Spirit proceeds and does a work of regeneration of a dead heart, you cannot even see the very kingdom of God that you would go after. So that means that the, that the salvation of every one of us is a sovereign work of God's Spirit in our hearts that opens dead minds and dead hearts to see the kingdom of God and to trust and have faith in Christ. 
There's a second aspect that if we're going to fulfill the work of Jesus, not only must there be the strong foundation, but also secondly, to do Jesus' work, to continue, the church must have sufficient power. Look at Acts 1, 4, and 5. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, quote, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Skip down to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 8, that word power, you've heard this before, in the Greek is dunamis, the dunamis. And Alfred Nobel, anybody ever heard of the Nobel Peace Prize? You realize what he was famous for inventing? And it was dynamite. Interesting, a peace prize from the man who invented dynamite. And when he was trying to figure out a word to put upon this invention of this explosion, he chose this Greek word, dunamis, which we call dynamite, power, right? Uh, So in Acts chapter uh, 1, verses 4 through uh, 5 and verse 8, what Jesus was was emphasizing was the need for spiritual power. Now, if you've ever called a, a tech line or tech person and was trying to figure out what's wrong with your computer... They weren't being snarky, but they've lived long enough to know to ask you this first question. Is your computer plugged in, on, right? Oops, thank you. (laughs) Um, Is there sufficient power resourcing the computer? Is the computer on? Does it have power? Jesus is emphasizing, first of all, he's given them an overwhelming assignment. Go into all the world? We've never been 20 miles outside of our home. How's that going to work? I'm not even sure they could even fathom what that is. But Jesus said, I am going to empower you to accomplish my mission. So here we see them, Jesus telling them to wait for the power. Do not depart, but to wait. Let me tell you a reason why. Uh, He told them to wait uh, there in Jerusalem. Go back up to that previous verse, verse 4 and 5. The disciples were told not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, okay? And the reason that that is important to wait is because uh, what do we have in Acts chapter 2? The day of what? Pentecost, okay? Okay. And so the celebration, the Feast of Pentecost, came 50 days after Passover, okay? Penta, you ever heard of the Pentagon? Okay, so Penta meaning five, Pentecost speaking about 50 days as a festival following Passover. He's been with them now how many days, 50 or 40? 40, so there's 10 more to go roughly, okay? To 50. So he told them to wait because there was also a fulfillment of of this entrance of the Holy Spirit in a new and dynamic way that would take place during the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And so uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that, uh, and again, the Old Testament uh, picture here is that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, 
And I have it written down here somewhere, and if my eyes would just land in the right place, I would find it. But the feast was intended in the old covenant under the old system was to be this feast of first fruits that, that during Israel, that when they would have their harvest, they would bring the first fruits, and this is back in Leviticus, they would bring the first fruits for this harvest as an offering to the Lord. It was, it was the tithe, uh, you know, they didn't call it, but, but I'm saying it was, the, it was the top. It was the very first thing. These are... These are, uh, these are the first tomatoes out of my garden. I haven't even eaten any, but here they are. I want to give you the first. It was the first fruits. And Paul connects Jesus to this festival in 1 Corinthians 15 where he calls Jesus' resurrection a first fruits of the future resurrection of the dead, which is ours, our hope, okay? So there's that connection there. That's why he wanted him to wait because there was a prophetic significant event Coming on the day of Pentecost, the disciples received the permanent indwelling of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Prior, prior, and we've talked about this in different scenarios, prior, the Holy Spirit uh, did not indwell believers, but the Holy Spirit came upon uh, different individuals to empower them for service. What would happen, and what Jesus was referring to, what would happen was going to be quite significant. But it wasn't necessarily new, because when we get to Acts chapter 2, we'll see that Peter said this is what the prophet Joel spoke about, and this is that. This is what's going on. They're not drunk like some of the folks were saying there. And so we're going to have lots of time in Acts to talk about the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to do that today. But notice thirdly, okay, to do Jesus' work, the church must have also a sharp focus. I've pastored, senior pastor, associate executive pastor, been in church, but I've pastored, gosh, going 35 years, hard to believe, and you know what? In just being not only a part of the church and pastoral ministry on staff at different situations and Christian ministries and just being a student of God's work and all, we as a church body, we can lose focus so easily in our history. We can get so out of focus. We can do that with our own personal lives, but as a church... We, we can get out of focus. And, and I, something I, I meant to mention back when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God in the previous uh, scripture we looked at, what's interesting is obviously not only what he did teach them, but what he wasn't instructing them about, right? He wasn't instructing them about how to create a political movement that was going to coalesce and throw out the Romans and we're going to create our own Christian political party. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't give them this manual that was brought down and said, here's how you build a big church. First of all, you've got to have coffee when people come in. People like coffee. You know, Christians, we, and again, listen, I, I, there's no scripture and verse for all that, right? But sometimes we focus on such dumb things. And we think if we manipulate and do enough gimmicks, it's going to draw people. Theology of God's church should never change. Methodologies, we got room to be flexible. Agree? Whether you meet at 10 o'clock, 10.15, 10.12, as something Don Baker would probably do. Uh, <laughs> you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. 
But Jesus didn't focus on that. If we're going to do the work of Jesus, we must have a sharp focus. Look at verses 6 through 8. I brought in verse 6 here. So when they had come together, they asked him. Notice their question. This is their question. You got one question, right? This is their question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed. If you, had a, if you underline your Bible, I'd circle that word fixed. That's a great word there. Fixed by his own authority. And then, of course, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You know, they were, they were still kind of trapped into that old mindset. That's what hung them up back in... Matthew 16, when Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And they asked a bunch, you know, told them, and then finally Peter said, you are the Messiah. Remember that? And then not too, right after that, Jesus began to tell them how the Messiah must suffer and eventually die and be killed. That was not in their theology of a suffering, dying Messiah, They wanted a Messiah that was going to come in power and restore Israel back to its uh, glory of David and and kick all these Gentile pagans out, or, or better yet, kill them, and restore the kingdom to its past glory. That was what their, their idea of a Messiah was. And so back in Matthew 16, when Jesus began to talk and talk about how the Son of Man must suffer, I guess they never read Isaiah 53... Peter took him aside. Jesus. I don't know where you're going with this thing, but I talked to the guys at lunch. It's a non-starter. We got to do something, right? I mean, and Jesus rebuked him and called him the devil and said something very astounding that's pertinent here. He said, get behind me, Satan, because you are not mindful of, of the things of God. Oh, how we can stumble when we're not on focus into falsehoods and not be mindful of the things of God. You know how you get mindful of the things of God? You need to know the Word of God. Don't be trusting somebody's books about dreams and visions and uh, tourist trips through heaven with unicorns and all the nonsense that's out there. Trust the reliable Word of God. Amen? Well, most of you like that. Okay, good. Pay attention to this. Jesus did not correct them about their question. Some might would say, see, that's erroneous. There is no future role or kingdom for Israel. Jesus did not correct them. Because I believe there is a future role uh, for the nation of Israel in the future. And you can talk about millennium and all those things that... Um, can keep you up at night. What Jesus was saying here was not correcting them regarding their future of Israel or whether there was a future of Israel, but he was correcting their desire to know the timing of when that would happen. You with me? They wanted to see when Jesus was going to meet their schedule of end-time events. And Jesus let them know real quick that he operates by his own schedule, his own timetable. 
he, he said it in a very nice and kind way. If we said it today, we'd say, guys, um, go back to that ne- the verse before that. He said it in a very nice way, but essentially he said, you know, it's really none of your business. Right? It's not for you to know. And the fact that the Father has fixed by his own authority means that God, our God, is not just waiting for things to play out and see what he's going to do. And, you know, have you ever seen, uh, sometimes some malls have these stores where they sell posters and pictures and all that. And I remember one of the goofiest pictures, and if you have this in your living room, don't have a small group there, put it in the garage. But one of the goofiest pictures is this painting of, of Jesus and, this, and the devil playing chess. You ever seen that? You never? Oh, okay, good. Now you're going to Google it. Let me see that thing. And again, that's kind of the way our culture in Hollywood that, you know, there's, there's, there's Luke Skywalker and there's Darth Vader. There's good and there's evil, and they're on equal grounds. There is no equal grounds. The Father has fixed. Right now, we are operating under a fixed schedule that nobody, nobody can deter. Jesus says, look, there is coming a day. There is a future, but guys, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. You've got a job to do, and you need to get busy doing it. And so, Jesus uh, talked about that restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but it wasn't the time. And so we take comfort in knowing that a sovereign God is in control. But notice fourthly, and the last here, to do Jesus' work, we need the tools of a solid foundation in the resurrection of Jesus and the message of his kingdom. We need the sufficient power of the Holy Spirit. We need the sharp focus of the Great Commission. But fourthly, to do Jesus' work, the church must have a sure hope. Verse 9 through 11 of Acts 1. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, these two men said to these disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, and I, I want to say, I'm not sure if it's the King James or the New American, New American Standard, but actually says this same Jesus. I like that better. But this same Jesus, same sentiment, this Jesus, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. Say same way. Same way, same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, Luke... Uh, talks about the ascension also at the end of Luke 24. And what I want you to see here is the disciples, uh, here they're talking to Jesus after he finished teaching them. That meant they know everything they need to know. Okay? You got it? Ready? Good? Okay, I'm gone. And right before their eyes, he's just taken up, bodily taken up. That'd be pretty... Significant. I would, I would be really impressed. I mean, I would, first of all, I'd be impressed with the fact that a dead man was, was alive. But I'm like, whoa, 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 don't go. 
he was lifted up bodily. And, 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 and I love these two, some people speculate, angels. In essence, they said, quit, quit staring up into heaven. Go and do what Jesus told you to do. And let's just kind of pause there for a second here. That, that's, 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 a good, that's good counsel for us. Because sometimes we can go be so fixated at stargazing and speculations that we ignore the unfinished task that remains here on earth. Does that make sense? Let me show you a quote from um, John Stott. John Stott, uh, who is in heaven as we speak, was a prolific uh, scholar and preacher and wrote a commentary on just about every book of the New Testament, and I have benefited by his commentary on the book of Acts. But he said this, and, and, uh, and it's, it's a long quote, so I broke it up into three parts. Notice what he says. Their calling, the disciples, was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards, outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants, occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment, an obsession with times and seasons, these are things which can distract us from our God-given mission. Christ will come personally, visibly, gloriously. Of that we have been assured. Other details can wait. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. I think that's wise counsel. Would you not agree? Because there is a uh, sometimes a, a, a market, and, and the publishers know this. That's the reason when somebody publishes, you know, 88 reasons. Remember that? 88 reasons Jesus would come back in 1988. Remember that book? And there was a guy named Harold Camping, and he had a book like, you know, a phone book, and it was all this quote-unquote detail. Just because it's big and long and you can't understand it, doesn't mean it, it's true. You know, it's kind of like medicine. It's got to be good because it tastes terrible, right? No. I mean, there has been spec... And you know what that does? That brings reproach upon us, upon Christians. We're, we're made to look like a bunch of idiots. And you know what it does? Is it denigrates the trueness uh, of the fact that Jesus will return. So let's make sure we're not spending all our... Reading time, we're fascinated about all, you know, people having these near-death experiences and all these type of things. Let's be focused on what Jesus told us to do. We need to be about sharing the gospel with our Muslim neighbors. We need to learn how to do that. We need to cultivate how we can be more effective in building relationships and bridges to unbelievers. That's where our focus should be. It's not saying those things aren't important. Jesus is saying, don't get distracted. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, gave us this promise. And he said, and this gospel, this gospel, what, what is this gospel? This is the gospel that he personified. 
Christianity is built around a person. It's not an organization. It doesn't have its headquarters somewhere in a different part of the world. It is built around the person of Christ. That's the reason if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we have no religion. We have no hope. We have no faith. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom, there you go, will be proclaimed. Not, well, I hope it will be proclaimed. I hope that someday, he said, it will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And he said, then, once it is proclaimed to all nations, then the end will come. There's still work to do. There's unreached people groups. There's people in your own neighborhoods that have never heard the gospel of Christ. That's where we should be focused on. And it's because of what Jesus said in that great commission that all authority in heaven has been given to him that we can operate. But I want to just go back for one second with this significance of this ascension. You see, our ability, empowerment of the Spirit, to carry out Jesus' commission. You can move from that slide there. Maybe go. I'm not sure what the next one is. There we go. It's back to the point. To operate and fulfill this commission, Jesus has, to, has given us the tools, right? Resurrection, the power of the Spirit, His teaching, the kingdom of God. He's equipped us. He's given us the tools. But the significance of the ascension is, is a kind of a capstone that's, that, that reminds us very visibly of Jesus' rule and His reign and his authority up over all things right now. We, we alluded to that earlier. But there's something, again, to be reminded of this ascension where he left. And the Bible speaks about now he is at the right hand of the Father. And I realize there's questions about the Trinity, and we can't answer all those right now. Just suffice it to say that there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm not saying that we, there's, there's, we need to understand that, and, but to some degree, we're never quite going to grasp that. But that's what the Bible teaches. Not three different gods, not three different, you know, so leave that alone for right now. We'll come back to that some other time. Here's what I want you to hear. Our ability to carry out the Lord's great commission, the mandate, depends on the fact that Jesus is right now exalted to the right hand of God the Father, where he possesses completely, fully, all power and authority. Let me show you two scriptures that bring this out. Remember Stephen? Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, testified very dramatically in Acts chapter 7. At the conclusion of Acts chapter 7, it says in verse 54... Now, when they heard these things, heard these things from Stephen, the religious leaders that had been part of crucifying Jesus, it says they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. It's almost a demonic type of rage, isn't it? But verse 55, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, don't let that glide by, full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven, and what did he see? He saw the glory of God, and who? Jesus standing. 
standing at the right hand of God. But I thought he was seated. But in this moment, Stephen is going to be murdered by these men. Jesus is standing, watching. And he said, Stephen, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We see Jesus in full authority and control, even over the martyrdom of one of his saints. You realize that it was the persecution that really got the church out of their Jerusalem walls and pushed them out into Judea and the uttermost parts. God sometimes will use, big, big revelation here, will he use sometimes the negative attacks of situations and people in situations to fulfill his purposes? You bet. Say, well, where do you get that? How about the cross? How about Jesus crucified by the hands of evil men that was predetermined before time began to be the lamb that would be given to take away the sins of the world? But I want you to see Jesus in his ascended authority. Paul helps us here in Ephesians 1. That should be on the screen too. When Paul said, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion, or power and dominion. And Jesus is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And look at verse 22. And he has put all things under his what? And gave him, Jesus, as head, authoritative head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Don't let that, and he put all things under his feet. Remember what Matt said about the significant in Muslim cultures about the soles of your feet? That it's offensive to sit with your soles to be seen? Do you remember when that iconic video of when they, uh, they're in Baghdad, when they pulled down that massive statue of Saddam Hussein. Remember that? Uh, after whatever, whatever I can't remember the, all the wars, but one of them, that, you know, that we, when Baghdad was supposedly liberated. Anybody remember that? Okay, I just want to think I'm making it up here, hallucinating. If you watch it, do you remember what the men were doing as it was coming down? They had their shoes off and they were hitting the statue. Because in the culture, that was one of the worst things they could do to show their disdain and hatred. They took their shoes off and they were hitting it as it was coming down. So what is the significance with that when Jesus says that all things are put under his feet? Jesus is in charge, my friends. Now, tomorrow, next Saturday, next week, next month, and we operate under the full rule and reign of Christ. And so the church is given a task that then... And now we are commissioned by our Savior and we have confidence that we go in His name, in His authority. 
in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the songs I, I thought of as we as I thought of this particular passage, and we will uh, sing it in the days ahead, but um, I didn't give sufficient notice uh, to our worship team, uh, maybe like an hour. That probably wasn't enough time. But um, many of you have probably heard it, but um, it, it's, it's, the, it's the song, Before the Throne of God Above. And we're, we're going to play that on a video in just a moment as, our, as, we, as we just conclude this. But I want you to pay attention to the words, Before the Throne of God Above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great, great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his hearts. As we kind of wind down today's message, let's close with just giving your attention to the screen and listening and, and allowing your spirit to join in as, you, as we listen and, and reflect on this song. It has kind of a, a little uh, opening here, but, uh, but uh, just for a, a minute or two, this song before the throne of God above, uh, a wonderful worship song. Don't leave. Just, just kind of uh, remain, and, and we're going to have a time of prayer and giving the opportunity of the Lord to respond. But this is part of our worship here today, so let's play that. Please, a great high priest whose name. 